Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on the business of law. I'm Nicole Giantonio, our founder and host. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Left Foot. Today's guest transitioned from law firm partnership to in-house counsel, managing litigation for the world's largest retailer. Today, his office oversees his company's relationships with all outside counsel, measuring performance and cost with a focus on data and the use of time-saving technology. Our guest on Left Foot episode number 68, we're happy that he agreed to participate in our Executing Change series. Walmart's Senior Associate General Counsel, Alan Bryan, welcome to Left Foot. Thanks, Nicole. It's great to be back with you. Great to have you back on our program, Alan. Alan, you were the recipient of the ACC Legal Operations Professional of the Year Award and a 2018 Buying Legal Counsel Award for Process Improvement in Corporate Procurement. This past week, you accepted one of the 2018 ACC Value Champion Awards based on work you and others in the legal operations team accomplished. Fantastic recognition across the board, Alan. Congratulations to you and the team. And thank you for agreeing to come on our program and talk about the change that was executed within your department. So let's start there. What change initiative within Walmart Legal has had the most significant impact on the performance of the department? Well, thank you again, Nicole. Let me just say that those awards that we've received are absolutely a team effort and a testament to our desire to find value. But in order to do that, we had to set out to make a big change. And that big change was really to the culture of the legal department itself. And if I may, I'll give you just a brief history. Walmart's legal department had grown for many years in kind of a siloed fashion where the litigation group, the real estate group, the intellectual property group, and others were growing, growing in the size of panel counsel, growing in the responsibilities they had, all in a silo to each other. And there was not a lot of centralized uh, leverage going on. At some point, while there was administration of all the law firms, at some point we created a legal operations team that would really look at not only our outside counsel spend, but also our internal processes and people handling matters. And what we wanted to accomplish was to change the mindset of operating within a practice area to operating holistically as one single legal department unit. And so what we set out to do was change the way all law firms were engaged. And that was because over the years in that silo environment, you had engagement letters, tens of thousands of engagement letters being entered with firms, sometimes the same firm, but perhaps under different terms, different dates, different rates, et cetera, et cetera. So you had a lack of uniformity. And we wanted to find a way to really make the engagement process for all firms uniform. And so we designed a master engagement letter that was then sent out over the course of several months to all of our panel law firms and those that wanted to do our work. And we negotiated terms, but essentially kept the same basic terms for all of our firms the same. And at the same time, we negotiated rates. And what we said was we would like to, depending on the nature of the work, the type of rate, et cetera, we want to, to set these rates for time periods. And we staggered those time periods over several years. And so what we hoped to accomplish was uniform terms and also a staggered rate system that also incorporated AFAs more, more and more so as we went along. That was the first thing we did. That was a big change in the culture of the legal department because 
for many years, case managers and line attorneys had negotiated their own terms with law firms. So that at least set us on a level playing field. But obviously, we wanted to demonstrate the value that that change would bring through the data we were creating and that we had created over many years. And that led to our next issue, which was utilizing our data to make better data-driven decisions. Once we went into our our matter management and billing system, what we found was we had a lot of stale and inaccurate data that needed to be cleaned. So at the same time that we re-engaged our law firms, we set about cleaning up all of the data within our system so that we could build tools that could show the value we thought that this change was bringing. Oh, fantastic. So did you have a target when you started or you knew that there was an opportunity for improvement and you set out to build that consistency, build the uniform structure, which definitely want to talk about the response from your in-house attorneys. But before we go there, was there an efficiency target? Was there just an awareness that there could be efficiency gains by making this change? Was there a number that you had in mind at the outset? We believed through the engagement letter process alone that we could bring down spend between 5 and 10% over the course of the following fiscal year. And depending on your rate of inflation, you could see that percentage going up as high as 15% on the rate program alone. That was not a hard and fast target. We knew, however, that we were creating certain efficiencies and certain cost savings through that program. But of course, we did not want to have a set goal because we were working on the premise that some rates would be raised at the same time others would be lowered, which was all a product of case-by-case or firm-by-firm review of where rates stood. But we thought we could get close to 10% in that program. Where we thought we would take it a step further is to clean the data and then build tools which would help us drive savings even further. Which makes sense. And seeing how the program, once it's implemented, where you could stretch out and have have more savings. You mentioned AFAs as part of that. How much of the work that is being done by outside counsel is compensated through AFAs at this point? At this point, I would say not as much as we would like. I can't give you a percentage, precise percentage, but I would say we are a legal department who has primary spend or the majority of our spend is in litigation. And that is obviously one of the more trickier arenas for AFAs. But in other matters, we're handling projects for, for instance, for the business, or we're handling repetitive matters. We do work on fixed fees or even contingency fees and the like, but it's not a large percentage, at least not as large as we would like it to be. And I think one of the things that we hope to do to get it where we want it to be is to increase our use of RFPs, matter by matter RFPs. And to further that, this year we started utilizing the Pursuit RFP platform, which has allowed us to ramp up the matter by matter RFPs and take a hard look at who we assign, for instance, class action or large commercial litigation to. And I think the next step from that move is to really get into requesting more and more. AFAs in litigation, which will have the greatest impact on our department. Let's talk about the feedback you received from your in-house counsel. Feedback we hear on Left Foot, especially when we're talking with firm attorneys, is the relationships that they have with their in-house counsel clients. And those relationships make handling a matter go faster because they know the customer, they know 
that how the customers, what their strategy is, what their risk level is. So when we hear about outside counsel guidelines going into effect and being stringently applied, when we hear about a program like the one you implemented with uniform rates and uniform terms across firms, typically it's the in-house lawyers that are on the front line working with those firms that have the most to say. Well, I would say that the feedback was mostly positive. It goes beyond simply the engagement letter process I described into the RFPs. We also instituted over the course of the last couple of years, a third-party review by Sterling Analytics of our invoices, which was really a primary review level to apply our outside counsel guidelines and actually help our case managers because they would then have uh, invoices that had already had a first pass. In addition to that, we've also built some dashboards and I can talk in detail about all of those. But with your question being about how did they handle the change, I would go back to our outset, which was the engagement letter, new engagement letter process and rate process itself. And the first thing we did was to get buy-in at the top. And that is my deputy general counsel or the general counsel I report to, Phyllis Harris. She led this initiative and we went to our general counsel, Karen Roberts, and said, this is how we would like to approach this engagement letter problem where we have incongruent engagement letters and rates, et cetera. And it did not take much to see that there was a need to do something. So we had top level buy-in and I would suggest that to anyone. And we didn't stop there. After we had spoken with our general counsel, we took the proposition to our general counsel roundtable, which are all the heads of the different practice areas within the legal department, and really let them, I guess, chew on the idea that we would be instituting this process. And once we did, we then started pushing down the communications down to the case manager level. And that really helped to set the tone because you had the leaders at the top who believed in the change we were doing. So I think that helped at the outset. That being said, there were hiccups along the way. There were individuals who were worried about relationships, as you said, and we had to navigate those. But I will tell you, I mean, without many exceptions, most of the law firms, they were okay with going through the process and understanding that this is something that we were doing to demonstrate value to our business counterparts. And to further that, after we finished the engagement letter process, we spoke with a number of our law firms, had a number of firms visit the company, some of our strategic partners, and really explained to them that this was something we were doing to be a better business partner. It's interesting, Alan. You mentioned two things that are so important with introducing change, buy-in from the top and having support. The other is communication. And it sounds like there was time. Not only did you introduce the program to the different legal leaders across the organization that were impacted, but you also gave them time to provide feedback and then, of course, communicated with your law firms. Most programs, if they're rolled out with strong communication about the reasoning behind why it's being rolled out, and then there's an opportunity for feedback along the way, can create an environment for success, let's say it that way. There's a lot of organizations that don't take that step, and it's so important. I applaud you for having a third party get involved in this process. Because with Sterling Analytics, going back to the law firms, it allows your team to stand a little bit back from having to have those conversations, even though they are very acceptable and appropriate business conversations about costs and about the value that a particular payment structure has to the organization. And I would just say this, it's also a benefit to our attorneys in the sense that 
they now have the time back. When you think about the volume some of our attorneys have and the number of invoices being reviewed every week, it's a tremendous time saver. So we know that there are even there are untrackable efficiencies being captured through that process alone. But I'll say one more thing about what you were mentioning on the change initiative and just change initiatives in general. Communication is absolutely key. And so once we had the buy-in, we did send out a series of communications externally, internally. Internally, we have a weekly notice that goes out, our legal notifications. And if there was change in the program or something that needed to be known, we put information in the legal notifications. But we also made sure to keep our law firms abreast of what we were doing and why the entire time. More recently, just to keep momentum going, we've started a quarterly newsletter that is specific to legal operations initiatives, and it's providing updates on the programs we've instituted over the past two or three years. What a great example to let them know their efforts in working with you on this are working for the organization. Looking at the project as a whole and the change as a whole, from the engagement letters through to the RFP platform being implemented, what was the most surprising aspect? Pleasant surprise for me was the acceptance of our outside law firms in walking through these changes with us and really in partnering with us on the changes that were occurring. If we take a step back and think about it, Walmart as a traditional brick and mortar retailer that has moved into completely omni-channel retailer is going through a lot of changes itself. And we explain that to our outside law firms. We explain to them that to be uh, good stewards of the business for our associates, customers, and shareholders, that we had to have a mindset that we were going to do everything at low cost so that we could continue to provide low price to our customers. That's our concept of everyday low cost equals everyday low price that's so famous. I was really surprised that our law firms were overwhelmingly on board and some of them asking, what can we do to help in this process? How can we partner? Or they would come to us with suggestions. And I think that's really important to see when you are choosing good partner law firms for a company is that they are understanding of your business and the changes and evolution that's going on at your business and are there ready, willing, and proactive in their help. That was a really pleasant surprise to me. I think that as a whole, law firms, they get a bad rap for not being innovative, creative, or wanting to do what the companies or the clients want them to do. And I think there are some firms that probably do fall in that category. However, I think Most of the firms that I speak with, they want to do what's right by their client to the best extent possible. But my personal belief is, as we see the changes that are occurring within the legal profession very broadly, including the different ways that legal services can be provided and purchased, law firms will become more more attuned to the fact that they need to be proactive and need to be innovative in order to maintain. There's a lot of awareness. At Clock this year and last year, there were a number of law firms that participated in that program for the reason that the world is changing and there's a lot of other competitors out there and there's a lot of choice. Customers have a lot of choice. And it's great to see their willingness to talk about things like data, like efficiencies. And now a word from today's sponsor. 
Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Go to audibletrial.com backslash left foot and download a free title to start listening. That's audibletrial.com backslash left foot. You noted, Alan, that you have an analytics team, which I bet when you graduated from law school, you never thought that would be part of your team makeup. Maybe, maybe not. Did not have a clue. Talk about dashboards and data and how that's impacted the way that you're working. And of course, even more specifically, how you used dashboards and analytics to implement the change that was just described. Sure thing. I mentioned earlier that we underwent a very significant data cleanup project. And that was really purging very stale and inaccurate data. But the second part of that project was also to, if you will, close the door to inputting data into our systems, our matter management and billing systems. And so now data flow all comes through one channel. And that's important because you want to control the flow of data so you can keep the data accurate. Otherwise, when you try to build tools, your outputs will be inaccurate. You won't get buy-in from the people you're trying to get to use those tools. So with that being said, yes, I was very fortunate to be uh, working side-by-side with a data and analytics team led by Tariq Abdullah that had a couple of data scientists who were extremely talented. And what we did as a whole, all of us got together in many, many meetings, and we tried to come up with those KPIs that would be most beneficial for our leadership to see. And once we had them, our data guys could go into the system and start extracting them. And so what we did was we utilized simple Tableau formats to create dashboards, and we called it the General Counsel Insights Dashboard. And it would be available to all General Counsel from the head general counsel to the practice area general counsel. But then the ultimate goal was to bring it all the way down to the case manager level. And of course, your view was dependent on your own caseload. So a general counsel over a practice area could see all of the dockets of the persons that were under his or her organization umbrella. And this was really to give more transparency and more real-time data to those individuals so that they can make better decisions. What are my top cases? Who are the top attorneys? What are my average rates? What am I spending the most fees on, most expenses on? But also importantly, what does the team look like? Am I maintaining a diverse spend throughout these matters? So various important KPIs like that were part of our initial general counsel insights dashboard. That came after many, many meetings where we got together and really just pieced what we thought would be the best KPIs for the group. There you go. Really stretching out with data in your department to make additional changes, looking at new technology. From your perspective, what's next? What's coming from Walmart Legal based on what's available today and what's in the market? I'd like to probably address that in three different broad categories. One is, I mentioned earlier, related to the data, and that is becoming more predictive with data. How do we use the information we have, not just our litigated and legal matters, but also data we are able to get through our stores, because that's data that will help us determine how to predict, for instance, the valuation of a matter, the length of a matter, etc., I think being more intentional in our predictive analytics should be in the future. I'm not saying it will be next month or the month following, but somewhere down the line, I see that picking up. 
Another area I would mention is artificial intelligence, which gets bandied about quite a bit. But we have, as a legal department, already started using it in various areas. One pretty natural function, which is as an assistant to discovery and finding relevant discovery documents, two in the public affairs region. But also, we announced a partnership this past spring with LegalMation. And that partnership has led to our, in a few states, already answering complaints, repetitive style complaints, and creating first sets of interrogatories and requests for production using artificial intelligence, using Watson. And that's a really exciting technology because we think that ultimately we can end the need for a lot of that very simplistic and repetitive work that an attorney does at the outset of a matter. And of course, that will drive some savings as well. Just in our measurements alone, roughly speaking, we know we can save 50 to 60% of an attorney's time in review of the documents and, and drafting of documents at the outset of a suit. That's number two. The third area that I would like to see us get more involved in, and I think we've had the discussions around it, it's just such a major project, we're going to have to really think about how we attack it, and that's knowledge management. I would say that there's so much that can be done with good knowledge management with a, uh, a legal department that could create efficiencies internally, but also cost savings externally. The obvious example is, let's say you create a 50-state survey of law in year one, and by year three, you want to update that. Well, good knowledge management will help you bypass a total recreation of that survey. And the same could be said of anything from briefs to pleadings of other stripes, but also just understanding for creation of uniformity and what have you, understanding past public testimony and things of that nature. Knowledge management to me is something that no matter how small or how large the department might be. We are hearing that. We're hearing it to your point from major organizations, real large legal organizations, as well as tech companies. Knowledge management, I agree, is a, it could be a big win across the board. One topic we talked about during your last episode, we talked about creating value for the Walmart business through managing legal spend. In your work, in your tenure at Walmart, what do you believe legal operations has implemented that has created the most value per legal dollar spend? I think that I could make the case for any of the initiatives I've mentioned previously. However, if I were to pick one, I think I would go to our RFP system and the use of RFPs on a matter-by-matter -matter basis. We have found the Pursuit platform to be very beneficial in, in helping us speed that process along. But however a company, a legal department chooses to do it, I would say RFPs and doing them in a quick fashion will help them not only get a grip on who is the best qualified to handle the matter, who has the most experienced team, who has the best ideas on strategy, but these will function as market price drivers. For instance, the Pursuit platform itself has a reverse auction function so that if we choose to, we could solicit bids, if you will, for handling a certain matter and then put the firms into reverse auction function for a flat fee amount. And this is nothing new. GlaxoSmithKline has been doing this in its legal department for many years. Marty Harlow actually started that practice. Whether you do it through a reverse auction or you just have a straight 
request for proposal that encapsulates fees or phase fees, you can help drive market price because the next time a uh, someone who did not get the RFP will think, if you're properly giving them feedback, as we believe you should, you might say to that firm, look, you were X percentage over where the average proposal was, and that's really going to drive the market. And so I can already see it occurring here. If we were to scale the use of those RFPs, it would certainly derive the greatest value to our department. Whereas the, the invoice initiative, which it does drive immediate value, it is really just enforcing rules that should already be utilized. Whereas the RFP function is really driving market behavior. So I would choose it as creating or having the potential to create the best and biggest value. Good to hear that. And interesting, we hear contract management a lot, that idea that let's drive how the market is charging for something. Let's drive the value component. And I think for firms, challenge to bid on a matter when they don't want to underbid and they don't want to overbid. If you can help provide the information so that they can appropriately bid, especially if it's an AFA, there's an acceptable amount of risk on both ends. Yeah, I think the difficulty that And I was a practicing lawyer for over a decade and I was a litigator. And so I, quote unquote, feel the pain of trying to price legal services. I think the difficulty is that price and value in the legal context can both be on such a inverse scale because value to one might be low price, but value to another has nothing to do with price and everything to do with outcome. So you can move price and value, you know, depending on on the matter and depending on the company and and what kind of outcomes you're looking for. You might just be looking to save legal fees. Well, that's a heavy value towards price. But you might also have a bet the company matter where, you know, we need to pay no matter what it takes. And so I think that the difficulty is for law firms is determining what is this matter to this company. But I think it goes back to being good strategic partners with your clients. And if you know the company, you know the importance, you can properly bid and properly price matters to equate to the value. Absolutely. And you mentioned it earlier. And that is the point is your counsel needs to understand what your drivers are. If a matter is a bet the company matter. And they, of course, that will be part of the discussion, having that communication. One more question before we end our time together. First, Alan, thank you. You've been very generous with us and with our listeners. Implementing change, it takes a lot. You've got a full plate without implementing change. And of course, we all are looking for ways to improve. We've mentioned having buy-in from the top. We've mentioned communication. What other factors do you believe are important for an organization when they start executing a major change? Is there a need to pilot change. What would you say would be an important factor in starting to execute a change program? For many of us who have been trained as lawyers, we've also been trained explicitly or implicitly to be risk averse. That's just the nature of our profession. So beyond the buy-in, beyond the communication, and yes, I do think you should pilot uh, things and we have, I think the first thing you need to do is change your mindset, your own mindset. If you were about to be driving a change initiative, you need to be creative, innovative. You need to think strategically and holistically about how this will impact the entire organization, how it will impact its goals, how it will impact the business you're 
trying to advise. So the first thing I would do is really get into an innovative mindset. And from there, you can open yourself up to the benefits of change. And that will help you along the way to communicate it to the leadership, communicate it to those who will ultimately have to drive the change, which are the other members of the legal department in this instance. But really having that mindset, which I equate also to a growth mindset, and that is to never stop trying to improve. That is the essence of a growth mindset. That's also the type of mindset you need if you're going to impact valuable change in an organization. That's a terrific point. And it's interesting because I think the people we're seeing in legal operations today are the ones that are saying, we need to not look at this as risk, but as a necessity to make these changes. So I think that is probably uh, part of every interview for a legal operations professional in today's world. So terrific point, terrific add to our program. Alan, any last points you'd like to share with our listeners before we say goodbye? I would say for those of you in the legal profession, particularly the legal operations function, but really throughout the profession, these are very exciting, but possibly scary times, depending on how you look at it. The profession itself is undergoing a tremendous amount of change with the rise of legal operations, with the rise of legal tech, alternative sources of legal services, et cetera, et cetera. And None of us really know how it will all play out. But what I would suggest to anyone who is is wanting to survive and thrive in this changing profession is to become nimble and be ready to adapt to the change. And that's whether you're an individual practicing attorney or a legal support, or if you are running an organization within the legal profession, such as a legal department or law firm, that is remain nimble. Keep abreast of the changes that are going on around you and determine how you can best help your organization or yourself navigate those changes because they're here to stay. Thank you, Alan. Important last point. It's been a pleasure having you as a guest on Left Foot. It's been my pleasure, Nicole. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left Foot. Our episodes are available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and leftfoot.com. 